1: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpera, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today I am very pleased to welcome Karen Petru, who is the author of Engine of Inequality, The Fed and the Future of Wealth in America, new from John Wiley and Sons. Karen, welcome. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So if you would, why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do and, and what it is that impelled you to write this book. Well, impelled me
2: is really the right word because I am in my day job managing partner of the company I founded in 1985 called Federal Financial Analytics. And we have a very busy practice advising global financial services firms, many of them banks, as well as global central banks and regulatory agencies on policies, rules, laws, the public um, actions that affect financial uh, industry profitability and structure. Uh, So I've been spending lots and lots of my time over the years trying to understand um, monetary policy and regulatory policy and how it affects financial system, and watching um, the rules after 2008, especially after 2010, it was really clear to me that there were a lot of unintended consequences, uh, partly from the collision of monetary and regulatory policy, and partly because the feds, and I'm talking strictly the United States, but I think this is true in other countries as well, uh, the post-2010 framework made banks a lot safer. But that changed the bank business model in ways regulators didn't anticipate and actually led to significant vulnerabilities in the financial sector as a whole, vulnerabilities that we saw all too evident last March when the global, particularly the United States, non-bank financial system collapsed under the stress of COVID and the banking system around the world stood remarkably firm. So looking at all those unintended consequences, uh, I started working on a paper for one of our clients in 2016 about the impact of monetary and regulatory policy and uh, the ways in which they undermined financial stability. The more I got into it, the more I thought, partly because I was reading Thomas Piketty's masterful book, Capitalism in the 21st Century, and it was waking, opening my eyes, the more I thought, you know, I think economic inequality is an unintended consequence too. Now, I started on my you know, own time really thinking that through. How could it be that the unintended consequences of monetary and regulatory policy, particularly with a focus on the U.S., had such a profound impact. Once I sort of got that together in my mind, I actually um, used an invitation in early November, two days before the United States election in 2016, I was invited to give the after the dinner address to a group of global central bankers. And I laid it out for them why I thought then 2016, monetary policy and regulatory policy were making electorates much more unequal and therefore a lot angrier. And the central bankers went, went, huh, that's interesting. It could be true. Then we had the U.S. election. And with economic inequality so much on my mind and financial policy, it really seemed to me that that was a large reason the election turned out the way it did. Hillary Clinton's key votes, particularly African-American votes, didn't turn out for her. And I thought one of the main reasons was she took the line the Fed and the Obama administration did, which was that after 2010, and particularly 2014, the US economy was a quote, and this is the Fed's favorite phrase, a good place. Well, it was if that place was Park Avenue, but it wasn't in most African American and minority communities, and people didn't want to vote for Donald Trump, but they stayed home. Conversely, Donald Trump said to high school educated white men, you are unequal and it's not your fault. And I'm going to fix it. I hear you. Now, he said a lot of other things that I don't think he should have. And he never fixed it. He made a lot worse. But he spoke to that inequality and the anger that it rouses. So that's when I started to write my book in 2017 and why I wrote it, and why I spent nights and weekends doing it, because I I do have a lot of other things to do.
1: (laughs) So... So as as you think about that 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 inequality, right? For you and I think for lots of people, there are there are at least a couple of big buckets when we think about the consequences of inequality. One of them is just simply basic human well-being, right? And what that means not just for families, but what that means for communities and for economies. But the other piece of this is as you pointed to, the ways in which inequality can create instability in political and electoral systems. Now, When we... Typically, sort of look for explanations at that, right? You know this. You point to them in the book. We, we, the the explanations that pop up are well, what's going on? Well, it's globalization. It's the way in which technology changes economies and labor markets. It's changes in tax policy. It's declines in unionization rates and worker power. It's the influence of the rich on U.S. politics. It's uh, increasing returns to education. Right, sort of the the usual suspects. So you're telling a very different story in this book that puts the Federal Reserve at the center of the story. So so walk us through that case. Why should we be adding in the Fed to our thinking about what creates this kind of insecurity, this kind of inequality?
2: It's a great question, Steve. And the reason really struck me, because when you just Pointed to do. When you look at inequality, economic inequality, whether it's Piketty's book or a much great amount of research, you've named many of the causes, demographics among others, globalization, yep. technology, education, uh, unionization, political uh, dominance. What, what struck me as I really started to think about that, that's all true. And I think Particularly if you look again at the, the Work in the World in- Inequality Database, or Piketty, you see, and I agree, ter- terrific amount of increase in U.S. economic inequality starting in about 1980. But what I saw when I started looking at the data, which didn't exist at that point um, in other sources, was that after 2010, something really happened in the United States. Because the United States was already unequal in terms of both income and wealth. But starting in 2010, inequality, especially wealth inequality, shot up. And in fact, it shot up faster and um, farther than it ever has since uh, in the 20th century. So we didn't all suddenly get a lot older. Trade policy didn't change. In fact, tax policy got a lot more regressive under Donald Trump with the big tax cuts for the rich and for corporations. But inequality marched on, and you'll see in my book, there are several charts which show how significantly U.S. economic inequality increased. And I think the only significant variable in the policy arena in the United States, starting in 2010, when you see this sudden just electric charge, the engine of inequality, really revs up. And I think when you think about it, you recognize that what, is income, what is wealth but money? And who controls money more than any other US agency or really force? It's the Fed. And for a lot of the Fed's policies, the more I looked at it, I think had direct and demonstrable,
1: unintended, but direct and demonstrable inequality impact. So the 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 actions the Fed took, in particular in response to the, the, the real estate financial banking crisis uh, that led to the Great Recession, uh, you're arguing accelerated these longstanding trends about inequality and, by the way, left a large segment of the population that much more vulnerable to the COVID crisis when it comes along. So is, is, this, is this simply a story of interest rates being too low or is it more complicated than that? It's,
2: that's an important part of it. It's a combination. Like everything else, this, this is complicated. It is a combination of ultra-low rates, often negative in real terms after taking inflation into account. It's the impact of the Fed's giant portfolio distorting the way the financial markets work. It's the impact of the Fed's safety net between financial markets, which made the power of ultra-low rates for yield-chasing high-risk behavior, and the further incentives for uh, equity investments uh, and corporate bonds due to the portfolio, it powered those up because first there was the Greenspan put, now there's the Powell put. The Fed steps in when markets tremble, creates a tremendous amount of moral hazard, no-lose propositions. And then finally, you had the post-crisis rules, which, as I said before, made banks a lot safer and the financial system a lot more vulnerable, in part because so many households took on a great deal more debt. The more vulnerable the American household, the more debt it has and the less capacity that household has to, to absorb even a $400 unexpected Um, expense, let alone unemployment or the grave disruptions we saw when COVID hit.
1: But for those households, those low interest rates are helpful, right? Because it's it's, the cost of that debt is relatively low. So why does these low interest rates wind up having disparate impact on wealthy and non-wealthy households?
2: It's because for lower and low, moderate and middle income households, those low interest rates don't have an impact their debt is very high cost credit card debt let alone overdraft whatever
1: 16 17 20% right, right.
2: yeah yeah and w- and when you when you have a sudden unexpected expense what do you do you take out a payday loan those are 3 4 500% on an annualized basis or an overdraft you know a $30 charge for a $15 overdraft these are very high cost loans now the real impact the federal always defends ultra low rates because it makes mortgages more cost effective and the idea is that people with high interest rates go refi their mortgages and reduce their rates and that creates consumption capacity and that makes the economy grow and all is right with the world but it isn't true those refis are largely taken out by upper income white households there's a lot of data in, in the book uh, elsewhere now as covid's hit there's even more compelling recent data that i didn't get into the book showing that refis, they have tremendous disparate impact on communities because minority communities, low-income communities have lower credit scores and for them mortgage credit is either unavailable or yet again, high cost. At the same time, ultra low rates really eviscerate a family's ability to save because you put your money in the stock market in 2007 you had, at the end of 2020, a 162% increase in the value of your investment. If you put your money in the bank after 2008, when rates suddenly dropped through 2020 into now, when rates are actually negative in real terms, you lose at least a quarter of the amount you put into the bank just in terms of real return. That's very unequal because most low, moderate, and middle-income households aren't able to invest in the stock market, and when they do through 401k or other plans, it's a very small part of their wealth compared to upper-income households.
1: So so just to sort of put a bow on this, so so part of what's happening in this story is that people with means are getting access to money at exceedingly low interest rates. They're investing it in the market and in other places where they get exceedingly high returns. They're benefiting in ways that people without access to capital don't benefit from. You started earlier by pointing out this, this sort of period of, of exceedingly low interest rates uh, creating unintended consequences. What does the Fed think it's doing?
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory— Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
2: The Fed thinks it's doing, and it, it says this as of you know, just Jay Powell said this today. Um, it's been, they've been saying this repeatedly: is that ultra low accommodative interest rates stoke economic growth. This is conventional thinking. This is the way monetary policy is supposed to work because the idea is, as I said before, that when your rates of interest are ultra low, consumers and companies rush out, borrow more money. And what do they do with the money they borrow at these low rates? They buy something with it, a car, a house. They invest it in plant and equipment. That generates demand or employment, and the economy picks right back up again, and then everything is so great the Fed has to tighten and shove things back down a little bit. That's the theory, and that's what the Fed still thinks it's doing. But it didn't work. After 2010 through 2020, even with ultra-low rates, we had the weakest economic recovery since the Second World War, as well as acute economic inequality. And, again, the high-risk financial markets that came crashing down in 2020. I really fear that now the Fed, despite the – it expects growth in the second half of 2021 to be over 6.5%. But it thinks it needs to keep its portfolio huge. It's going to be as much as $10 trillion this year and rates ultra-low to spur Employment, it's not going to work. What it's going to do is spur more market highs and uh, much more economic distress and inequality. And I think in my book I show how this mechanism works and why it's so dangerous.
1: And and are, are is it just are are they are they stuck in in thinking through these questions with economic models that were created at a different time for a different economy? What 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 is it that why do they not see what you see? What's your read on that? I think
2: a major reason, and there's a lot in my book on this, is that the Fed sees the United States as it was. When I went to graduate school, maybe when you did, Stephen, when everyone I know at the Fed in in the corner offices did, America was a middle-class country. And that conventional view, that ultra low rates, works when you have a big middle class. Because middle-class people have the economic flexibility that they do go out and borrow. And then they invest or they buy. And that that worked reasonably well. And you look from 2010 through even today, right now, as again, as, as of Jay Powell's testimony before Congress this morning, the Fed talks about unemployment without regard to who wants to work or who has been kept out of work. The Fed is beginning to think a bit about how to better understand unemployment. And they've given a couple of speeches about it. But if you look at the way that the so-called dots on the plot that guides um, the Federal Open Market Committee and monetary policy, last week, they're still using the old data. The Fed looks at net worth on an aggregate or average basis. So it looks and says, hey, look, America's getting richer. Isn't that great? America on average is getting richer, but it's only a very few, very rich people skewing the data. Most Americans are in real terms poorer, particularly in net worth after taking debt into account basis. Household income. The Fed prides itself on household income. Oh look, wages increased, especially for lower wage households before COVID. Uh -uh. Real wages in 2019 were the same for middle class households as they were in 2001. And the nominal increases in wages were driven generally by more hours worked or more members in a household working, as well as by significant jumps in higher income jobs. The Fed mistook America, that good place. Remember I said the Fed thought America was a good place. Well, on average, it probably looked like it was. But that's not this country. Most people below the top 80%, we're
1: struggling and the data, the venues doesn't show it. And I feel like I'm asking the same question again, but it's one I'm of the sorry. things that all no, 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 it's like, it all, no, that's not you. It's me. It just sort of stuns me that, that, you know, this is sort of an undergraduate research methods mistake. <laughs> right? I mean, literally, right. It's like, well, wait a minute. Right. It's like, you know, Bill, you know, uh, 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 Jeff Bezos walks into the room and suddenly we all have an average income of, you know, $80 billion, um, it it's how I mean and I know that this is a long standing problem right sort of the narrow, and and you know arguably more broadly in the economics profession itself has become too habituated to looking at particular kinds of data measures and not thinking about how to use perhaps more complicated and more difficult measures to get a better sense of what's actually going on more broadly across different kinds of households uh, I sort of before we talk about sort of the policy changes the Fed can make, what kind of intervention would you recommend to help them get a richer portrait, no pun intended, of what's actually going on across households in the US?
2: Well, I think I agree with you. I mean, the economists are only now, and it's stunning to me, moving on from the, the quote, representative agent, the averages and aggregates models to heterogeneous data. This is a big new thing in the last year or two in economics. And, I, the Fed needs to change faster than the than the profession because it's so influential. And I think pressure from Congress, pressure from listeners on this podcast, I hope pressure from readers of my book may help the Fed see that it needs to move to heterogeneous data. Another thing I, I should have mentioned before, Stephen, is that I, another problem when you mentioned what economists are prone to doing, and this is another. Huge issue also at the Fed because economists are the Fed. They love general equilibrium, stochastic, dynamic, neo-Keynesian models that, in upside down, backwards, that you know you can run computers on forever. And you look at this stuff, and it's completely. I read a lot of this stuff, and you say, "How could it have made that?" The assumptions are nuts. And you shove a lot of stuff into a model, you get a whole lot of stuff out. And the Fed makes policy this way. If you read its its model-based assumptions about what its new monetary policy would be, you would think the United States would be in, in covert because it's the, the Fed is following the model, not the money. Chapter five, chapter four in my book is all about this, this issue of. Markets don't work by models. Markets work by instinct. Traders are looking for the money, and banks did that. The banks didn't respond the way the Fed thought when it modeled out its financial regulation because banks are profit-making. They didn't just say, as the Fed thought, they would, oh, okay, we'll just make a little less money making loans to American households. They said, oh, okay, now we won't make loans to American households. We'll, we'll, we'll start becoming financial market traders and make, more, make the money our investors demand of us. It's it's the data and the model. And I think the Fed needs to hear from a lot of outside forces that economics is changing and it needs to be out ahead of those changes, not lagging lugubriously behind.
1: So so let's, let's talk about, about sort of policy changes that you would recommend. What are the things that you think beyond sort of, of, of engaging in, in uh, uh, better data analysis and better data collection uh, and to perhaps uh, move away from some of those old models guiding their thinking? In terms of, of the policies that you would like to see the Federal Reserve Bank enact, what's on your list?
2: Well, the publisher, you mentioned John Wiley. My editor at Wiley liked the book a lot. And he said, but you
1: know, you can't just stop here. You have to put in solutions. That's and, every editor's answer to everything.
2: <laughs> well, he was right. I, I, you know, it was just hard. It, he was right. So, chapters 10 and 11 of my book try to do that. And I have two charts, one chart in each chapter with a set of solutions on the regulatory and one on the monetary policy side. When we're talking about monetary policy, I think it's important. I think that the data issue seems really geeky, but it isn't. It's fundamental because bad data means bad decisions, and we've really seen that. I think the the Fed is a huge fan of what it calls forward guidance, telling the market what it's going to do. Great. Stop telling the market we're going to save you each time things get a little rough. Don't worry. We'll raise rates. We'll lower rates if, if markets look a little uneasy. Forward guidance now needs to say, okay, well, you're on your own. We will obey the law and provide emergency liquidity only in exigent, unusual circumstances, as Section 13.3 of the Federal Reserve Act requires. And on the penalty terms, the law also stipulates no more handouts, especially for junk bonds and other high risk takers, what the, the Fed bailed out an amazing amount of high-risk corporate debt that really should have been forced to learn a hard lesson in 2020. Forward guidance and, and the clear intent by the Fed to reimpose market discipline and end moral hazard would make a great big difference. The Fed should also issue forward guidance that it will normalize rates to a living return rate, a real small it wants to be cautious, and I think it should be, because with the pandemic still upon us, financial markets are fragile and the macroeconomy is fragile. Move carefully, no shocks, no surprises, no big bangs, but move interest back up to a more living return that creates positive incentives for businesses to invest in plant and equipment and people, rather than just to recycle low-cost debt into more stock buybacks and dividends to the wealthiest people. Finally, the Fed has to shrink its portfolio. It's become a dominant force in the financial markets because a 10 tri- any, any entity with a $10 trillion portfolio defines market conditions. And I think markets are better at defining market conditions than the Fed. The more complex its policies become, the more the unintended consequences and the less the Fed is able to, to adapt to them. And you'll see another repeat of exactly what happened in March of 2020 because the Fed cannot control. The, the engine of inequality, as I call it in the book, is running so fast, so hard, steering it is next to impossible. And any you can't step hard on the brakes. We need to slow it down and then gently put it in reverse. And the Fed can do that. I try to show how.
1: You've also... Um... And, and, and I, I, unsurprisingly, given that a lot of my work has been around poverty and homelessness, uh, sort of love, love these approaches, but you've also thought through ways in which looking at, say, the recent uh, Recovery Act or the CARES Act, the ways in which more of those funds could have been channeled directly through banks to households, rather than through businesses or large corporations. Can you talk a little bit about what some of those approaches might look like? Sure. That was
2: one of the things that really annoyed me, uh, not angered me, is probably a better word, last March, when the Fed announced all these financial facilities, and it supported, as I said, junk bonds, it supported exchange-traded funds, it supported Large corporate debt issuers. Congress forced it also to support, quote, Main Street businesses, but the Fed set, mainst- quote, unquote, Main Street thresholds so high that it looked like uh, yeah, the- Wall Street on Main Street, the, the you had the companies eligible for that Main Street program had annual at one point it wrote, uh, annual revenues of up to five billion dollars, not exactly <laughs> your local barbershop.
1: It's a very big Main Street.
2: Uh, yeah. I mean that that's that tells you got to my fed's of view of America that a Main Street business would have revenues of five billion dollars. Hello. You know, this is not that's a good place, but it's not where most of America was, especially in March of 2020. I, I lay out in my book something I call the family financial facility for exactly the reason I mentioned. The cost for families suddenly thrown out of work, all still needing to pay rent, still needing to pay mortgages, still needing to pay student loans, all those bills, health care bills, through no fault of their own. That is the exigent, unusual circumstance that the law calls for. And channeling funds designed for the Fed likes to say, quote, households and businesses every time it puts up a new financial facilities to assist households and businesses. But it goes through the biggest companies on the globe, and that doesn't trickle down. We need ground up, not trickle down policy. And I think the facilities I talk about in my book would accomplish that.
1: And I mean, theoretically, I mean, the Fed could literally, you know, sort of of, of send money to banks to buy out late fees or overdraft fees for, for its consumers at the most basic level, correct?
2: That's correct. And that is a liquidity support. I don't think the Fed should become a giant bank. I think the Fed should support equal banking in emergency circumstances, working through the banking system to support families facing, again, hard luck. Hard circumstances through no fault of their own.
1: Although you do uh, uh, include uh, connections to what some people have talked about as a postal banking system in, yeah, in your I, list I, of possible solutions.
2: Yeah, I, I'm for postal banking to the extent it involves government benefits. I'm, I, I Gotcha. Yeah, I, I, maybe because uh, a lot of things that happened to Donald Trump, and I'm old enough to remember Richard Nixon, and I spend a lot of time thinking about what's going on in China – I don't want the government knowing too much about me. I, I think keeping our personal finances, except for what we have to tell the IRS, I, I don't think I want the government to know what kind of shoes I buy. And the bank doesn't care for whom I, to whom I make political contributions. Government benefits through the postal banking system, I think would speed the kinds of payment interruptions that hurt families so much we saw last March, but are broader federal banking system, raises a
1: lot of
2: growth, privacy, um, innovation, and other questions that trouble me.
1: How hopeful are you that the kind of vision you have for the the Fed uh, uh, altering its approach will will come to be?
2: I'm I'm always hopeful. I guess um, I, i grew up in this country. I've seen I've seen the hard times we had, but we are, we're a place of, of hope where people still want to come because they see us as a literally a land of opportunity. I think we aren't now. We could be again. And the response to my book really encourages me. And I known well in my field, but not as an author in, in the general um, trade press arena. And the book People seem to be really responding to the book, as you are, Stephen, and that gives me a lot of hope because I wrote it to make a difference, not to sell books. I really wanted to raise consciousness, and I'm hopeful because I
1: think I am. You've been listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Karen Petru about Engine of Inequality, the Fed and the Future of Wealth in America from Wiley. Karen, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Stephen. It's been a pleasure for me too.